Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking with Fausto Lendeborg, who is the co-founder and CEO of Secberis. Secberis is a cloud security governance platform, and we're going to be talking about cloud security governance platforms and some of the specifics of Sigberis. We're also going to t talk to Fausto about his background. He's worked for several different startups and he got his start in computer and computers and cybersecurity from a very young age. But before we do all that, let's uh, let's say hello to Fausto. Fausto, how are you today? Good, good. Hey, Mark. Thank you so much for the invite. Super excited to be here. My pleasure. Hey, I noticed from your LinkedIn profile that uh, you're in Miami. Is that where you're at now? That's correct. I've been here for over 20 years. This is this is home base. Wow. Wow. Hey, I hear a lot of good things um, about the mayor of Miami in terms of what he's trying to do to create a very conducive and open environment for businesses and especially IT startups to come to the to come to town. Yeah, Mayor Francis. I mean, he's one of our definitely our biggest uh, supporters of, of the ecosystem here. Started with a billboard in San Francisco, um, incentivizing companies to move down to to, to Miami, South Florida. Um, and since then, it was when the pandemic started. It has been amazing. I mean, his all around town just pushing the tech, uh, making it extremely easy for companies to to move uh, down here and um, it's a different town. It's a different town, 100%. Well, just from the outside looking in, I mean, Miami very much is a different town. Uh, the last time I was there, I couldn't believe it. it was, it's kind of like, I mean, e e sometimes you forget how diverse America is across, you know, across various cities and states. And when I was in South Beach, I was like, is this even the U.S.? I mean, because I'm from the Pacific Northwest and I felt like I was in some kind of Latin uh, American yep. kind of super cool place. Um, but in terms of business, what kind of things is he doing, to, you know, to make startups and businesses want to come to Miami? I think there's a few initiatives. I think the first initiative, they, they, they built a fund called Venture Miami out of out of city of Miami. And they're pushing a lot of education accelerators. Um, um, that's big to to really jumpstart the ecosystem of founders and entrepreneurs here locally. Um, the second thing that I know I've noticed is he meets with all of the CEOs and founders, and facilitates uh, just resources. You know, finding a building, finding a co-working space, um, connecting between all the founders. Um, it's just the city is very engaged when it comes to that. I mean, the other day we we built a crypto conference uh, annually here, and you know, the the city of Miami was one of the catalysts of of making it happen across the board. You know, you gotta mob, you know mobilize so many resources and different pieces to make it happen and make it successful. Something that Miami didn't do before now is a priority. So if you have a tech company or part of a tech company. Um, it's an open door policy. You can walk into the mayor's office and say, I need help in X, Y, and C, and he will sign a resource to help you. So it's, it's, he's just out there helping and offering uh, the city's resources on how we need it. How awesome 
and refreshing is that, man? That is, you know, know, if you come from a state where the bureaucracy is pretty thick or basic or, you know, apathetic to your needs, um, that that must be super, super nice to be in a place like that. And Mark, and I think one of the biggest things and people don't talk about is the inner city kids. I mean, there's programs that I'm part of a building now, which is providing free scholarships to accelerators, incubators. And, and, and those high school inner city kids that are born and, and raised in Miami, giving them an opportunity to mix into the uh, foreign outside tech companies that come to Miami and how do you grow the city without including them. So one of the biggest initiatives is, is bringing those, those kids that don't have the opportunity or were very far from Silicon Valley tech ecosystems in Texas and in the New Yorks of the world actually giving them the bridge to come in. And I think that's super uh, noble and and, and thoughtful, actually. Dude, I'm getting all inspired here. Seriously, this is like so cool because, I mean, we see a lot of money that goes to government programs. And a lot of times we're not sure how effective um, that money is being spent. But what you're talking about, when you have a, a government agency that understands what it takes to get businesses to come to a location and then how to support them. That's one thing. But then when you can actually um, leverage that to create opportunities for the people in the community, because if you're growing up as a disadvantaged youth um, in in however you define that, but let's just say somebody who's not, doesn't have a, a family or friends who have gone to college or have made that leap into, you know, some type of IT or STEM type job, you're out there wondering, how do I do that? How do I make it happen? And it's, it's, it's hard to believe that it's even a possibility. But when you've got what you just talked about, scholarships and internships and opportunities, it all of a sudden becomes a real and it becomes part of that the fabric of that culture, man. So that's 100 percent awesome. Yeah, I know. And 100 percent. And because I'm from Miami and I was one of those kids, I, I think, you know, his his just changing the way any city should do, um, should, should run cities. And, and I'm super proud of being a, a part of Miami, actually. Well, you should. Hey, well, let's um before we get into what you're doing now, um, because I mean, this, you know, what we're talking about with youth and everything kind of ties into, you know, your background. You got into computers, networks, hacking from a very young age. What was yeah. your motivation and how did that who facilitated that? You know, when when I started, I was what, 16, 17 um, years old and, and probably over 20 about 20 years ago, um, give and take a little. And, you know, my mom was a computer science background and I always had, we're very excited about computers back when DOS and before Windows 95. And, you know, I know some, some people are listening to this, but yeah, I was, you know, I, that was already, I was already old when Windows 95 came out, but I was super excited of, of just hacking and hacking, not in a way of just breaking in, just making things work or ma- or breaking things apart, you know, either video games, either uh, burning CDs or creating small applications. It, it was curious that I can you can make computer do things. Um, so I went to high school and uh, got more serious about now after high school, what am I going to do with my life? And my dad came came into my room one day and said, you know, he saw me studying. Um, of computer science is a look cybersecurity. That's that's the future, um, and we're talking about two thousand and six, five, uh, right, seventeen years ago, 
And immediately after that, I started transitioning from computer science more to network security, right? And and and, and immediately I just fall in love with it. Um, and got my first opportunity at the age of 19 for a cybersecurity startup in Hollywood, Florida. Um, and that company, I walked in and there was probably 14, 15 uh, people there and ended up being one of the best cybersecurity groups in the world. I mean, I got in in a time where we started scaling and we were protecting the top 15 banks um, of the world, you know, the Bank of America, the JP Morgan Chases of the world, and the company was named Prolexic, and it was, it was an amazing experience. I spent there seven years doing traffic analysis in real time. And I, I noticed in the notes that uh, Prolexic was um, later actually acquired by Akamai, and I, what I remember or recall about Akamai is it was, they had multiple tenants or cloud storage. Um, I forget the term right now, all around the world, so that if you had sites that, you know, you wanted to have, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Data? Uh, well, I didn't I didn't recall Akamai as a security company. So to explain yeah. the, the connection between Prolexic and Akamai. So when Akamai started, started in the business of content delivery network, and it was that's the word i was looking for yeah yeah to deliver the data closest to the to the user today we see fast internet the fast internet um was was made because the content was the closest to you right so it was some sort of caching saving the content in your closest uh region so when you request content let's say netflix you're watching a movie uh, the movie you're streaming is not coming from the source server back in San Francisco. It's being delivered from Miami, right? So they built a content delivery network um, and then pretty much won the entire space in content delivery. And the next thing was they had all the customers and they needed to build and create a security service to protect the traffic and to protect the content that they were, they were storing. Um, so they started looking for solutions uh, from an M&A perspective and, and found Prolexic and it was a massive acquisition close to $400 million back in 2013. Awesome, man. That's, uh, I, I mean, and you were quite young when, to, to be part of all of that. So I'm sure you learned a lot and hopefully benefited as well. Um, jump forward. I mean, now you're the co-founder and CEO of, of, of Secberis, uh, a cloud security governance platform. So I, I'm just I'm just thinking that you saw the you know the trend towards cloud migration and and decided that's the next frontier for security and compliance or what's the story behind that? So you know just just that it, it you know every every software company starts with with solving a problem right and what problem was I having um, that I came up with with this idea and, and I was sitting I was sitting at the desk in the last company. Um, and I was in charge of cloud security, cloud compliance, and, and pretty much cloud migration. And I realized as I was sitting there, I don't have any resources to be able to reduce my remediation time of challenges. I don't have any resources to collect all the evidence from a compliance perspective. And I saw a world where I wanted to continue to have speed in the business, the agility that the cloud offers, but still remain secure, right? And that was the first big 
use case for us. Um, then I said, is this even possible? So I went to the marketplace and really couldn't find, couldn't find any solutions out of the box that can offer that, you know, velocity, speed of the business and security. So I really started thinking about a new world of, of looking at looking at things and how can we build a new way of securing the cloud infrastructure, securing um, the development uh, kind of technology stack. And because we were we were going down the path and I say we the industry where there was going to be more applications and more infrastructure, more changes and more vulnerabilities and more challenges. And it was born out of my pain, right? So I started Sigbaris about five years ago, trying to solve this massive problem, which is cloud security, cloud compliance. Um, and that's how Sigbaris was born. Okay, so let's drill down on that a little bit, because when we talk about cloud security and cloud compliance, those are still pretty broad terms. So can you give like some specific use cases so I think the biggest thing is to understand what's happening in, in, in today's world, um, which is very basic and everybody knows, which is every company is moving to the cloud, right? And, and that's how it starts. But what does that mean, moving to the cloud? It means that every industry, um, every company of every industry is trying to build products or applications so they can take it to market and win their corresponding spaces, right? They want to continue to when market share. You talk about healthcare, you talk about banking, you talk about construction. They're all going through this digital transformation, right? and that's a big, big term. Now, one layer under that is if you need to take an application, if you need to build an application, a new application uh, very fast, you hire a team of engineers. And these engineers are now DevOps engineers, they call it, or full stack engineers. And in order to facilitate speed to build an application, they go to something that provides speed and agility, which is cloud infrastructure. And cloud in the form of AWS, Google Cloud, you know, Azure, Microsoft, and, and some others in the market. So once, once you bring these engineers and they start really scoping the business requirements to build an application, the first thing and how they get incentivized is to build something for the business and build it very fast. Now, what happens when they're build, 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 build? One of the biggest risks that they introduce to this cloud infrastructure, these enterprises, is a, mis a misconfiguration of the application. Now, taking a step back, applications, building an application in the cloud, it's not how we used to build the application 10 years ago, which is like a PHP, a C-sharp, and all these different uh, language, uh, coding languages that requires a, a compiler and a source code analysis. Now we use services, platform as a services that come in, pretty much think about toys with batteries. So you can ramp up an application faster than five, 10 years ago. That's why the cloud provides that agility and that speed. So when these engineers are building an application, they are not thinking security focused at the time. They're thinking velocity. And this velocity is creating this risk, which is a misconfiguration of the service that they're using. I'll give you a perfect example. 
let's say I'm an engineer and I'm building an application and I need to I need access um, in the outside world. I need to allow a port in a firewall. I need to create a database to store my data. When you create a database, you need to make sure that the data is encrypted. You need to make sure that only the right people have access to the data. There's a lot of different controls in the configuration settings that need to be in place that are outside of the logic of the application that empowers the business, right? So that is where the challenges of the enterprise, they start, they start happening because you now have an engineer that can potentially create 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 changes a day. Imagine that times 500 engineers building multiple applications and changing. So the multiplier effect on the amount of risk in the form of a misconfiguration is n fold times thousands, right? So that velocity is creating a lot of different challenges um, for companies to make sure that every single service that an engineer uses in the cloud to build an application on or with it's actually done in a secure manner that is compliant with the security policies and security controls of the business. Does that make sense? Definitely. Let me just drill down a little bit farther, just so I yeah. understand. Uh, we're, when you're, what you're talking about is because, you know, a lot of people make the assumption that, hey, if we're using AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, that um, everything's secure because, hey, those are pretty secure companies. Uh, but actually, depending on how you configure your tenant and what you're working on there, there can be some gaps. So are you talking about making sure that uh, those services or the services that you're running on those platforms are set up in a secure manner? Or are you talking about that the that the code that you're developing for these apps that you're building um, is being released and deployed in a secure manner, or it's written in a secure manner, or both? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Now, you know, building building a cloud application, sometimes you are putting, you know, building code in a serverless function, for example, that it doesn't require the typical way of building source code in, a, in an application. It all depends on the application. But taking a step back, when it comes to the cloud, the cloud has something that is called shared responsibility model, right? Where the cloud provider is responsible to secure the physical aspect of the data center, right? No one is going to get into the data center. Um, and it's different layers, all the way down to the application and the data layer, right? So as the top, think about the top-down approach, physical layer being at the, at the bottom and top being the data, um, depending on what services you use for in the cloud, the customer continues to be more responsible for the configuration and the settings of those resources and services than the provider itself. So yeah, when you put an application in the cloud, the cloud provider is responsible for the physical aspect of the security, but the customer is responsible for both the settings and the configuration and also the data security and the source code of the application. So to answer your question, the customer is responsible to secure both the configuration of the services and the source code of the application that's running within. So both. 
Excellent. That that makes it very clear. So how does it work? So one of the things that the cloud the cloud is is an as code world. I mean, we 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 heard about kind of the engineers connect to these cloud providers using the API, right? They push changes using an API. They push changing um, in this open API world, and every time there's a change or a configuration change or an application push actually build a system that listens to every single event or change or behavior that the engineer is doing. So if an engineer today opens up and, and creates a database, we immediately are able to scan the entire database and all the settings and all the data and match that against a set of policies and controls that the customer pre-configures in our platform, right? So now we have this set of controls. Think about policies, controls, requirements. Everything must be encrypted. Everything must have a tag. All the data must be categorized between confidential public. Um, there's only certain groups that, that need to have access to a certain databases depending on the business logic. So we match business requirements, compliance requirements, and security requirements against the data but we transform those requirements into something called policy as code, which is the technology used to decode and encode and transform those requirements into a language that the APIs can actually read and adhere to. So every time there's a change, that the engineer makes a change, in real time, we're able to assess, detect the problem, and notify the right person that needs to fix it. So the complete complete pipeline uh, process uh, built in. Makes makes a lot of sense. Policy as code. That's the first time I've heard that. I've heard of platform or PAAS, P-A-A-S, yeah. uh, yeah. but um, policy as code. Yeah. Got it. Hey, um, so so when you go in and you're you're having a conversation with, I'm, I'm assuming that you talk with CISOs or 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 DPOs mm -hmm. or or um, what's the what what are the questions that they're asking you? So I think the first thing is understanding uh, from a CISO perspective, they have a lot on, on their plate, right? And one of the big areas of concern is the ability to scale their cloud um, securely, but the ability to enable the DevSecOps practice, which is every engineer must have a way of remediating or fixing the risk that they introduce. So we speak from a high level on, from a business perspective, we speak about maturity, the cloud security maturity, right? And there's five levels, and this is a framework built by this Cloud Security Alliance, which is level zero, everything is done manual. That means there's no checks, nobody is, is, is making sure that the build-outs are being secured by design, no one is verifying that the controls are in place and it's all manual, no guardrails. Level five is everything is automated from the detection, uh, from the remediation, and centrally managed and completely federated. So when we speak to CISOs, we paint the picture that companies that win in, the, in their space are thinking of a digital transformation that has security at the core but the tools that are part of their stack are centrally managed 
everything automated and federated control so they can scale because it's all about scale. It's all about more cloud, more services, more engineers. And how can you actually protect that scale? And that's where we talk a little bit to, to the CISOs. So their efforts is to make sure that their governance team, which is a combination of a cloud security architect that is in charge of making sure that this type of platforms are deployed across their clouds. Because one of the things to mention is these companies are multi-cloud and multi-cloud brings other types of challenges because you need something that is data agnostic to whatever the engineers are using under the hood, AWS, GCP. One of the use cases is today there's a large enterprise that goes ahead and, and does a, a, an acquisition to a into a smaller company and they inherit a whole nother set of cloud configuration. So they need a system that can scale across the current landscape and future landscape of growth. So CISOs immediately puts us in, in, in front of the head of cloud security, head of cloud governance. And this is where compliance and cloud security and SecOps and DevOps, they all really brainstorm to understand a platform that can provide multiple levels of, of, of a solution to the company, but every single user or persona can grab and collaborate in the, in the part that they need. Because cloud is a little bit of everybody's involved. The cloud architects, the security engineers, the engineers that are building, the CISO, everyone it's part of, of, of the of the of the cloud infrastructure in your PC. And then so once you have these initial conversations and your customers like, hey, you know what, we'd like to take a peek under the hood, do you typically do a trial or is it a POC? I mean, how how does that work? Yeah, so I think one of the things is to first understand and we do on the first call, understand the use cases um, that the customers have, right? We build a platform that has the ability to, to solve multiple problems depending on the use case. There's operational use cases, which means how can we save time for engineers not to log in? Um, there's, there's use cases of reducing alert fatigue and false positives. There's use cases of integrations and automation. There's use cases of making sure that we can assess and detect certain type of configurations that other products don't have. So the process is, is called a proof of value, which is something that I learned this past year um, that is beyond a POC. POCs, are for we believe, are more traditional as an evaluation method, just because I think use cases, the way to evaluate today's products, and it's because there's so many products in the market, is about understanding the use cases they want to solve for and run a proof of value that we can solve for those use cases, right? Because we don't want to get into, I've seen in the past in, 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 in the industry that sometimes customers and CISOs, they see the very nice graph, right? Or the pretty, the pretty colors in, in, the, in the dashboard and immediately they buy. But once they buy, they skip the right evaluation steps. And for us, we educate our customers on, let's talk about the use cases. Let's talk about multiple use cases across multiple business units. And we do conduct a proof of value that matches those goals and objectives and use cases to our solution. 
Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, I'm I'm just curious because I'm, I'm when I'm looking at the show prep notes here, it also mentions uh, that you, you you know that you guys help with compliance as well, governance and compliance being slightly different. Uh, so I'm I'm wondering when you're setting up uh, your tool, the cloud governance platform, are you able to adjust the policies or do something to see, make sure that you're in compliance with different regulatory bodies or standards? Yeah. So we have something called dynamic mapping, which is our out-of-the-box policies are already mapped to compliance frameworks. Uh, starting from CIS Benchmark, which is one of the best practices as a baseline to, to start with, all the way to third party and, and regulators in, in, in across industries. Those policies code that I mentioned earlier that can actually verify the configuration in real time, they can be dynamically mapped to any requirement. So we have a customer today that comes in and say, you know, I want to make sure that this NIST, this new NIST framework, for example, that came out last month, I want to make sure that those controls, I'm monitoring those controls across the configuration. It would take, in our platform, minutes to remap some of those policies and add those new requirements. So we have a dynamic mapping from the policy to the compliance control and then provide a compliance dashboard for compliance teams. So there's no blocking happening, right? So we build a universe where engineers are not being blocked by the cloud architects. The cloud architects are not being blocked by the compliance and the compliance are not being blocked by the engineers. Allowing this, three, this 360 degree platform, we provide true security, true monitoring across multiple business units as part of the CISO's um, efforts. It sounds like uh, you'd be helping a lot of different teams that sometimes have an antagonistic relationship um, get along a lot more effectively. That is so, correct, no friction. Yeah. yeah, so let me ask you, um, if we go back to the proof of value conversation, do you provide any type of metrics in terms of look you know by using our tools uh, your engineers are going to become x percentage more productive or you're going to achieve x cost savings or you know do you, is there any way that you can actually quantify the uh, the productivity enhancement so right now right now we do have business metrics about the time to remediate Right. And this is a metric that a lot of products cannot offer, which is there's the MTTD time, which is time to detect, and we do that in real time. But time to remediate is very hard because you have to be able to track the time from the exposure all the way to the to solving the problem. And then you have to be able to track that across the user, the application, or the infrastructure. Right. And I think that's one of the biggest uh, metrics that we have. We pair that with the attack surface. One of the things that one of the things that we speak very out loud is security is not something that there's no uh, magic bullet or, or, or silver bullet. It's not something you eradicate and to zero, but it's something that you continuously work and adapt to the growth of your infrastructure. Today you have 20 servers, tomorrow you have 1,000, in five years you're going to have 10,000. So you continue to grow, and as you grow, your attack surface continues to expand. 
So we do have metrics dashboards that are trend lines and can show progress across any area that we want. Otherwise, from the application level, the user level, the attack surface level, we compound that number into a risk um, uh, score. And you can see how you are moving down and continue to improve, showing continuous improvement as you grow. So yeah, we provide a lot of that stuff out of the box. No, I think that's really important because you can get the anecdotal, uh, you know, comments from your team saying, "Hey, yeah, I, I really like this. Um, I'm not getting held up. There's no log jams." Uh, at the same time, if you can actually quantify what you said, you know, the reduction of the tax surface or the um, uh, just the the general speed of of dev, then then it, it it helps to kind of reaffirm that hey this is, we're moving in the right direction. Let me ask you, um, kind of wind things down here a bit, but um, if if you know you were giving uh, advice to people who are looking for some type of cloud security governance platform, what are the you know top two three things that you just must have? And then depending on the organization, um, if it's if it's um, if it's multi-cloud, they need to immediately find a product that can truly support the entire the entire stack that the engineers are using. All the way from how they build an application to the, where the application gets dropped um, into a runtime. Um, that's the first thing. Make sure they have support end-to-end. -end. The second thing is that they need to find solutions that can be customized, right? Because the customization is super important. The out of the box, it's an amazing way to start, but you need to have platforms out there that can be completely customizable and tailored to the processes, to the requirements, all the way down to the integrations, just because every single company is different. And out of the box solutions for cloud infrastructures um, are not are not enough. You need to continue that second layer. And the third layer is that you need a frictionless deployment. You need to be able to have solution that unblocks everyone, an ability to scan, assess in real time, but also provide every single person involved that's responsible or accountable for the area of security or compliance with a tool within the platform that they can actually provide value towards to. And that provides a synergy around the enterprise that is part of a new culture of cloud security. Right? So when it comes to evaluation, we they have to start looking at multiple different areas, understand the evaluation, understand the use cases, and not get sometimes trigger happy or based on, on some vendor relationships that want to just push product down, down the customer because they can dramatically make a mistake. Makes a lot of sense. Let me, let me, what can you tell us about where SecBaris is right now as a company in terms of your size, your, you know, key customers, mm -hmm. and, you know, what does the next 6, 12, 18 months hold for you? So as a company, we are, we now are 35 people and growing. Um, we took a our product or platform to, to market and landed some of the largest enterprises in the market in both the telco we have a big customer in japan um, we have customers in the uh, pharma 
research and consumer health of space and in, in the legal tech. Right. So we spend the, in the pandemic, we spend all that time in, in stealth mode, truly speaking and learning from our customers how to solve this problem. Our customers have tried every single product in the market, have, have failed to do a end-to-end deployment with those products in the market. And now we're taking our product to the market. Right? Now we're expanding ourselves, expanding our marketing, expanding our footprint. The next 12 to 18 months, let's continue to innovate. There's more problems that we that we find out from our customers every single day, listening to our customers, continue to build features around our platform that can help with the automation. Um, we want to definitely have elements of machine learning and artificial intelligence where we can self-recommend things without even the user bringing it up. So we want to continue that path of automation, centrally managed and federated way of managing risk. Awesome. Hey, I'm actually surprised that you know you landed a enterprise customer in Japan this early on. Uh, it, I, having lived in Japan for six years and been doing business there off and on for twenty something years, um, don't find that often they are at the forefront or early adopters, um, and they've been somewhat laggards to cloud uh, to moving to the cloud. I mean, they're ahead of other countries, but they're you know obviously behind the U.S. and um, and in several European countries, but they're also kind of laggards in, in terms of adopting the latest cybersecurity um, tools and, and, and processes. Mm -hmm. So uh, so what can you tell us about how did this company reach out to you or how, and you don't have to give us any specifics, but I'm just curious. No, it was an it was an inbound. It was an inbound yeah. lead and they were one of our main design partners, although let me tell you a little bit about the, the Japanese market and this specific customer. We realized that one of the biggest problem in this cloud security, it's not the technology of detecting that there is a problem or security misconfiguration. The problem has been solved. The problem we solved the most is the operational and process problem of dealing with so many misconfigurations in real time. And although the Japanese market is a laggard in technology of cybersecurity detection, they're very process and operational oriented. So we are finding a lot of success with a different way of thinking about this problem, which is the true problem, which is an operational nightmare. So with that, we we extended, uh, extended the invitation and they came as a design partner where we were building features based on their true way of operating internally where everything is completely organized and the implementation and adoption has been successful. So we see ourselves, that if, if you can get a, a lagger, but a really good design partner, um, and also get an innovative partner on the, on the technology and features and combine those two, is the lethal combination of a successful implementation of a product. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I 100% fully agree with you that uh, Japan is very much process oriented and if you can embed yourself in a process uh, that you're there for a long time uh, it's just getting into that process but if you can prove that you add value that's that's the whole deal it's awesome well hey um, Fausto really enjoyed this conversation I mean it sounds like you guys are doing some um, super exciting work and I am going to put links to your company website in the show notes here. Is there anything else that we should uh, link to in terms of event participation, research, or anything like that? 
Um, I don't think that's I think the, the, the website should be more than enough. Awesome. Well, hey, I've enjoyed the conversation and would like to wish you and the rest of your team an amazing second half of 2022. Mark, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.